want to welcome you all to uh, this discussion that we're going to have. Very important discussion, I believe, uh, especially the times that we are living in. And uh, before we get started, I, I do want to just start us off with a word of prayer. Let us just pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, now as we meet, guide our conversation, let the things that are said uh, in this discussion bring you glory and honor. This we pray, Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what was going on in our country is, is really difficult to watch. And I'm reminded of what James Baldwin says. Uh, James Baldwin said it best that to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively uh, conscious is to be enraged all the time. And of course, when you see what's happening uh, with George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, when you see all of these, these this, this racism in the country, it's just difficult. It's really difficult to, 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 to deal with. And so I'm just glad that, that today we do have a uh, panel of guests uh, where we can be able to talk about this stuff and to, to try to process what we're going through and how to deal with it. And so I definitely want to introduce our, our panelists at this time. And, um, and I'm gonna ask that, that each one of you, if you could just uh, introduce yourself and say a little bit something about yourself uh, so that, that uh, we can know your background. If we could start with uh, Elder English, Elder English. Oh, well, good evening, everyone. I'm Baldwin English. Everyone calls me Roddy. Uh, I, I, I like to characterize, characterize myself as a recovering attorney, um, and but I still have a, a significant, strong interest in issues of uh, social justice. Uh, currently, the first elder at Tabernacle uh, in Miami, Miami Tabernacle SDA Church, and a proud graduate of Miami Union Academy. All right, all right, all right, Elder Tracy. Good evening, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for allowing me to be on this panel um, to discuss these issues that we're confronted with at this time. Um, I do serve as an elder um, at the Daughter of Zion, Seventh-day Adventist Church. I also, um, unfortunately, I'm still um, actively um, engaged in the practice of law, um, working on that recovery um, program. So I'll be definitely in contact with Elder English soon um, regarding that. but. <clears throat> I'm um, here just to um, try and add some healthy dialogue to such a unhealthy, disturbing time. All right, if we uh, pass the side. Good evening, everybody. My name is Pastor Sai. I am the assistant pastor at the Daughter of Zion, Seventh-day Adventist Church located in Delray Beach, Florida. I'm very passionate about social justice issues and working with marginalized and urban communities to bring awareness for mental health and wholehearted living. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Elder Farrington. And my name is Willie Farrington. Just want to say I have um, been Black in America for the last 52 years. So that means I've been conflicted, confounded, and confused about what has been taking place uh, repeatedly uh, with us as Black men in the Black community um, since that time. So I'm um, engage and um, active in this conversation that we're looking to have this evening. Thanks for putting it together, Pastor Newton. All right, so uh, let's try to get into it. Um, 
Now, uh, let's let's be honest, and, and we know that the culture uh, that we we live in, uh, especially our our church's uh, culture, uh, that some individuals would say, you know, as Christians, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. Uh, we're supposed to forgive. Uh, we're supposed to move on with our life. We're living in the last days. This is what we're supposed to expect. And why should we even talk about this? And so I want to ask this question uh, to you guys. Is it important um, for Christians to discuss uh, social injustice uh, and racism in America? And I want to, um, I guess, pass that to Elder Tracy. I know that you, uh, Malcolm, X and, and you know just remember I would like to to keep my job as a pastor after this so but but yeah if you could answer that for us certainly pastor I'll make sure that I just have a little disclaimer before I speak that all the views and um, um, statements expressed are not necessarily those of the facilitator um, one of the things that we're confronted with oftentimes in the church is that we love to have a conversation about things that don't touch concern our lives. And so what we do is we live a separate life at church than we do in, um, in our homes and in the street. And unfortunately, something like this happens, the, um, what we're confronted with is, this is not appropriate for either a Sabbath conversation, not appropriate for the church. We ought to be um, discussing things that are um, um, relevant to um, our salvation. Our survival is relevant to salvation. And so um, it is completely um, appropriate to have this discussion. Um, it is touching and concerning every one of our lives. You know, one of the things we keep seeing there, you know, the, the, the murder of um, black men and black women. You know, there is <laughs> a woman who we still haven't gotten the full story of what happened. She just ends up dead in a, um, in a jail cell. Um, a, a woman who's in her home and sleeping and they run into a house with a, a no not warrant and she's now dead. And so it's happening all around. And so, um, you know, when God is speaking about um, Abraham, he says, you know, Abraham, I know him. I, you know, there's things I know about him. Um, he's a man who knows um, to do justice and I know what he'll, he'll lead his household and doing the right thing. And so there is, a, there, there is something to be said about um, a God who stands for justice, the same God stood for Stephen when Stephen was an injustice um, taken against Stephen. So, um, you know, to relegate these issues to something that's separate and distinct from the church means that we're not really dealing with our real issues that we're confronted with. So it's completely appropriate in my opinion. I think anyone who um, suggests otherwise has their head in the sand. Um, and I, you know, I have some other things I have to say, but I'll give the other panels just some time. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I uh, want to um, pass that question to the preacher, uh, the preacher on this panel, uh, if you can answer that same question. Do you think it's appropriate uh, for us as Christians to talk about social injustice, and racism in America? Absolutely. Um, I believe the Bible is very clear on its stance when it talks about, you know, just it's a believer's role and standing up for the oppressed um, it, from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. Um, one story that I can bring to everyone's attention is the story of the Good Samaritan. I believe that story is a very appropriate story when we talk about injustice because we see this man going 
on the roadside, he gets mugged by bandits and you would think the Levite or the priest would just stop, you know, because they are heavily inundated with doctrines and just practices that teach, you know, God's love supposedly, but it was one of their fiercest enemies that stopped and was able to help out this man. And he took him to the end, he got him taken care of and then left money for him for whatever troubles that he has incurred. And I think that is the epitome of, you know, social justice, being able there to stand on behalf of no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, the skin color or what language they speak and be able to just advocate for a person and when other people will not. So when I see like, you know, social injustice happening in our society, it takes me back to that text because it reminds me that Jesus would not have put that story in the book of Luke for no reason if there weren't some practical lessons that we can learn as believers to implement within our everyday life. Um, and then there's another text that comes from Luke, Isaiah 61, and it's a prophetic book, if anyone's familiar with this. And it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for, from darkness for the prisoners. So this is the very text that Jesus walked in when he was walking this earth. And if we proclaim to be followers of Christ, then we follow even sometimes the, the gritty work that he did. We always want to follow the healing ministry, the feeding ministry, but we have to realize that Christ, he rolled up his sleeves and he was on the front lines for people that were getting stoned, for people that had mental issues, for people that were being called out of their name, being dragged out of their house. He was there. So I believe that's our role as well. Right. Very good. Very good. Well said. Well said. And so, so let's, let's jump right into it. I know that this is going to invoke a lot of emotions, uh, but, but I want to, to, of course, ask this question to, to all of you guys, and we'll start with uh, Elder English. What is your reaction you know, to the treatment? And, and when you, you saw the news reports of what happened to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, even with Christian Cooper just trying to, to birdwatch in the yeah. park. Uh, what 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 was your initial reaction? I mean, how did it make you feel as as a, as a black person in America and even as a Christian? You're you're a church leader. What yeah. was your your feelings? You know, honestly, my first reaction, particularly with respect to the um, uh, the tragic death of uh, George Floyd, uh, was anger. Right, that was the first raw emotion that I felt. It was anger. Uh, obviously, there's surprise and just uh, disgust at the fact that this officer uh, felt comfortable enough with multiple cameras in sight, with people standing in plain view to not just keep his knee on uh, George Floyd's neck until he died, but the official report says his knee was on his neck for two minutes and 53 seconds after George Floyd lost consciousness. And the callousness with which he approached that situation and approached that incident was I think the catalyst for the anger that rose up in me personally. You know, I felt similar uh, with Mr. Cooper, the bird watcher in New York, because uh, it was such a benign situation, you know what I mean? And, and this woman was able to, you know, I think the term is weaponize her whiteness, right? She weaponized her whiteness because she understood 
that it is used as a threat against this man. Because even as a liberal Democrat voting person, as we've come to find out, she understood the power that she had and the, uh, the, the imbalance of power between her and Mr. Cooper. And that was the scariest thing. That, that's not just makes you angry. That's not something that just makes you angry. That's something that is scary. Because you know, when you think about the broad landscape of politics, you would think someone with her donation record and her voting record, you would like to think that someone who rec recognizes the imbalance of power would be more sensitive in how they wield that power. For her to use it in that situation was, was troubling. Uh, you know, we had AY, uh, not AY Wednesday night prayer meeting, and this is our topic. How do you deal with this anger? And, you know, the idea is how do we, how do we release this anger in a constructive, in a constructive manner that can really, you know, make changes? And I'm sure we'll get to that. But, you know, just to answer your question, anger was the first thing that popped in my mind. And, uh, you know, how we release it is the second thing that came to my mind. I appreciate you for sharing. And so we want to ask that same question to... Elder Farrington, of course, I think you stated uh, 52 years of, of being a black man in the United States and, and congratulations on your son graduating from high school. You have 18 year old son and to be a father of an 18 year old son. I mean, how does this make you feel? You, you see the treatment of, of black and brown individuals in our country. Um, what was your reaction? All right. Okay. I'm, I'm on. Okay. Quite I was thinking not again. Sometimes we we hope that the news caption that comes across our screen when we surf um, surfing, you know, um, whether it's Yahoo or social media, is something that probably is fabricated or taken out of context. It's like this can't be happening again. How is it that someone can be sleeping in their home? and police come and raid their house and raid it with bullets and die in the process, sleeping. How is it someone can be jogging down the street and encounter someone who's not police, who's not uh, acting in an official capacity, and that encounter um, ends in, their, in the loss of their life? How is it that someone who's sworn in, um, who's, has sworn to protect the community uh, be involved in a callous act um, in arresting someone. And when I look at these uh, repeated occurrences, they would be misdemeanors at best, but yet they end in street level justice that see the sentence of death that is carried out. So having a son and uh, my, I myself and those on this panel, it lets me know no matter our status, our station in life, we are not safe. Uh, we look to rise above um, the social milieu that we, you know, maybe encountered in our years growing up. But no matter where we go, we find ourselves inhibited. We find ourselves um, prejudiced against. We find ourselves experiencing this repeated attack on us, and it wears us down. You know, it, it takes a strong mental toll on you to realize that this can happen in broad daylight. And yet there is a slow call to justice. And I, when, I, when I see it happen, you know, it, it pains me knowing that it could be me and it could be my son leaving to go off to college soon. Uh, even in his current status now, just looking at that, 
we're not assured or have any assurance that when he when our children walk out of the house that they'll come back. And something as trivial as bird watching, you know, in a park where someone wants to uh, activate law enforcement against black people, so they can probably come out and carry out the same sentence that um, George Floyd just had experienced, and she would have felt I mean, no more remorseful. So it, it, um, I apologize, you know. Um, I've, we've seen it happen. I've seen it happen so much and, and too often. And I want it to stop, but it continues. All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. And so um, let's let's try to move forward. Uh, got a lot to cover. And I want to ask this question of um, Elder Tracy. Um, why do you think uh, that the racial climate uh, is the way that it is in America. I mean, what, what has caused this? I mean, it's, it's the year 2020. We, 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 just, we just, I mean, remember this, we just had an African-American president. We have uh, black mayors, we have African-American uh, law enforcement, but yet we have this issue with, with racism in our country. And I wanna ask you that question, uh, Elder Tracy, why is the racial climate the way that it is in America? Our message teaches that um, the deadly wound is healed. And then <laughs> um, he receives power um, to go out and continue the evil. So here we are in America and it's akin to that same type of message we teach through prophecy that we're comfortable teaching in our church. But there was a deadly wound in America um, that was dealt through the civil rights movement. Um, there was an alleged um, 14th Amendment that came into place to give us equal rights. We felt as though we had arrived when we had um, a president who had our skin color, who had um, a white mother and a black father um, who was African-American. Um, he had a family that we could relate to. There was someone in the White House who, um, you know, people made jokes and say, you know, she's, she's, she's greasing um, the, the children's um, scalps and she's braiding their hair in the White House. We thought we had gotten to a place where finally we, we had arrived and gotten somewhere. And then all of a sudden, um, while he's there, the question became, is he really American? And so we started hearing that discussion. It kicked up, is he really American? Um, I wanna see his birth certificate. I don't think he really is. You know what? I don't even think he's, and, and they began, began to attack um, certain things. Number one, he's not really from here. He's not one of us. Number two, um, he's not really a Christian. Um, we don't believe that he, he's a good Christian. And, and they started going on this line. If you listen to what they're saying, it is echoing the exact same things that were said during slavery. Um, you're not one of us, you don't really belong here. Um, you're not a good Christian like we are, which is what the um, white supremacy uh, was touting during that time in order to kind of um, really push their agenda. And so they, they, they received more power and they, and they began pushing it through and you started hearing the propaganda spreading through different radio broadcasts, the Rush Limbaugh's, the, um, the, um, the, the different um, individuals, little, um, um, as they called themselves at that time, white nationalists, 
And so what's happening is they received their power, they started gaining momentum and they started using this slogan, make America great again. And I remember having this discussion with someone, um, a former coworker and her position was, no, that's not racist. Um, he's done, it's nothing to do with white, um, you know, with white supremacy. Um, what he's simply saying is let's get back to the golden age, the golden era, um, the 1950s when people were actually doing well. And I said, there's never been a time in this country's history where black people were doing well for you to say, let's go ahead and make it great again, for us to go back to a place in the 50s in the golden era and say, those, those are good times for us, we were really thriving. And she really had a hard time accepting that. Now, I believe she knew that I was right, but I think she had a hard time accepting that because for her, that's how she went to sleep at night, feeling with good conscience as they were doing the right thing by voting for this platform and voting, pushing this administration. And I'll say this, there's another gentleman who came out, he was a former white supremacist, um, he was a leader of a skinhead um, group, and he came out, he said that um, he, he actually recovered from that hate, and he said that he's actually um, moving to a place where he, he didn't even know people um, of different um, cultural backgrounds, and he was operating from a place of ignorance and, um, and, and hurt. He said, if you listen to that administration's platform during the campaign, there's certain rhetoric, certain things that are said, um, globalization, he said certain words, buzzwords that they know are their triggers for their communities, for their groups. And then when they hear those buzzwords, they know that that individual is actually holding their interests um, in, in their, their interests at, at heart and will help them pr um, promote um, and push that agenda forward. So as um, this current administration is going around and using certain buzzwords, um, that is what is being, um, he's sending a message, it's like a dog whistle. We can't hear it, we're not familiar with those words. They hear it and they know they can mobilize and start getting themselves together. So um, the racial climate in America, the way it is, the, why is it the way it is, is because we had the nerve to get an education. We had the nerve to fight against all odds. We had the nerve to actually beat them at their own game. We had the nerve to ask for a change in this country. And we had the nerve to go sit in the seat that they believe only belongs to them. And because of that, because of that move, they are trying to relegate us and bring us back to a place of submission, a place where black men are looked at as subservient, they're trying to emasculate us and strip us of anything of human value so that even our families, our wives and our children will find no value in us. And that's how you destroy us from within. And so if you listen to um, much of the reports, and I'm sorry, I'm, just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna wrap up with this, much of the reports, what ends up happening is, and this is what becomes very troublesome. We hear, the initial report of someone like George Floyd and that murder. This is because we've heard about, this has been going on for a while. It's just been building up, right? Um, and then so we hear about George Floyd. And so what ends up happening is the reaction to George Floyd as um, was brought out from Elder English, the reaction from George Floyd's um, murder is anger. And so when you get angry, you react sometimes with less control than you normally would. And so we see the, the country going ablaze, right? In the midst of that, what ends up happening is people begin speaking out and saying, look, there's no, and they begin speaking about the victims of this um, horrific act and their behavior. And they never speak to the transgressor or the aggressor in the situation and their behavior. And so oftentimes what they try and do is they try and correct and get us back in place because keep in mind, 
We have no business having a voice. And this is where this all trickles down to is this power play. And so um, the climate in America, what I'm getting at has never changed. It's it has never changed. It's, it has been camouflaged. We have fallen asleep at the wheel. Um, blacks um, in America, we have fallen asleep at the wheel because we believe that moment, that inauguration, we saw them walking down the street, we saw them finally get in the house. We thought finally, yes, they get it. And all they got was the fact that Harvard, Columbia, all these Ivy League schools, we believe by getting in there that we stand a chance to actually can take control and sit in some of these seats. And that thing threatens them to their core. And that's what they're fighting against at this time. It's not going to stop. Definitely, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Of course, we're going to ask the preacher that same question. Why is the racial climate uh, the way that it is in America today? Um, I'm just going to echo what Elder Tracy is saying. Um, just basically, simply put, um, it's been absent, but still present, you know, and what has magnified it even more, it's from a quote that I read this week about, from Will Smith, and he said that now we can record it, now we have the social medias in order to really blast people, just because, you know, that girl who recorded George Floyd, she was, I think, 17 years old, and now she's traumatized, she's going on her way wherever she's going, and we have the power of having a cell phone in hand that connects us to the entire world. So she can be in Minneapolis and she can connect to India, Asia, Africa, any part of the world, and they can see what racism is all about. Um, and I think that is the most powerful thing that we have to understand is that it's, yes, it's been exposed for so long, but now many people are catching on and it's making it a faster response for people to protest or for people to go out there and riot and to exercise their freedom and their disgust for what has been happening. Um, and then also um, we have to realize that a lot of these behaviors have been ingrained and passed over time. You know, when I think in terms of like a platform like TikTok a couple of months ago, or maybe weeks ago, there was, high school students who took it upon themselves and they did this little, I guess it was like a challenge and they were in the bathroom and they said, this is the makeup of a black person. And they were just had cups of water and they said, okay, you know, he has no father or, um, or you know, they steal or they, they, they're robbers or they're violent. And, you know, where do you learn that from? You know, is it from your parents? Is it from the negative portrayal in the media um, always wanting to shine the light on the inner cities that always do harm. But no, let's look at the white collar criminals that we never highlight. Only when stuff hits the fan like a Bernie Madoff, that's when everyone wants to go all on, up in arms. Oh, I lost my money with the stock market. But no, let's, let's you know, utilize the media in proper ways so that we can highlight everything that's happening in America and not trying to make the black race, the eyesore of America and where we have really built this country up and it is our brilliance, our brains that continues to see the longevity of it, but we just take the short end of the stick because of that racism. I'd like to weigh in on that if I could have passed it. Um, real quick, I think it's fair. You know what I mean? Why, what's the racial climate? Why is it the way it is? I, I think it's fear uh, that black people have been under thumb and underfoot for so long in such a uh, uh, significant manner 
I think there's a fear of like retribution, right? And crap, you know, we're we're losing, you know, in terms of a majority and so forth, and slowly becoming a minority majority country, right? And the demographic of the country. I think there's a fear of losing grip on the control. And my God, you know, even if it's not me who did the bad things, people that look like me have done so many bad things. I don't want to be on the short end of that stick. And I think that that fear was realized if you go back to the uh, Black Wall Street. Right when the when the black folk were doing their thing in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they're you know, owning banks and they're owning businesses and they're you know they're doing their thing, I think it was fear. If you read around it, that you know I would I would certainly characterize it as fear that drove to that whole uh, city being burnt and all those people being run out, run 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 down. Um, same thing happened to some extent in Rosewood. Different circumstances, but this reaction to black people just doing their thing and. Um, uh, and certainly there have been instances all throughout history. Uh, so, you know, I think fear drives it when you hear the discussion from a political level where, I, you know, I, I was almost in tears in 2000, 2008 when Barack Obama uh, came to the, uh, won the election. And, you know, I, at that time I was working in a law firm in Texas and that was a Tuesday night. And on Wednesday mornings, the first Wednesday of every month or second Wednesday, whatever it was, first Wednesday, I think, we would have a meeting. All the lawyers would get together for breakfast and each section head would kind of tell a report, here's what's happening in litigation, here's what's happening in corporate securities. And they would always, you know, it was always a light meeting. It was fun. They would talk about the Britney Spears concert the night before. It was a light way to kind of part of, uh, impart what's happening in the various departments. On that day, after Obama won, that was the shortest breakfast <laughs> that we had. These cats went up there and they said their report. Yes, we won this lawsuit. We lost that, lo that lawsuit and we sat down and that was it. And you could just feel the tension in the area, in, in, the, in the room. It was palpable, I'm telling you, palpable. And um, anyway, I digress. I think it's fear that drives it. And you know, we are generally, for better or for worse, a very forgiving people, right? So many things have happened and we forgive. So I, you know, if there are any, people that may be scared out there. I don't think you need to be scared. I think black people are just looking for equity, right? Not just equality, but actually actual equity. And once we get that, I think we're fine. I don't think you're gonna see any retribution or anybody jailing anyone like that. I, you know, it, it's, it's nothing to be scared about. So. Can, can I just jump on um, something? Definitely, definitely do that. The English you just um, hit on, it. it's very interesting. You know, I was working at a firm during that election as well, um, medium-sized firm. And I remember the day of the election, I actually um, took off, I volunteered to work at a um, um, voting um, site just to ensure that we actually got in and um, cast our votes. And I, I actually, um, funny enough, I put in to take the next day off as well. And the reason I did that was because I recognized that the next morning was gonna be very uncomfortable either way, either for them or for me. And so um, I didn't wanna come into work at that firm um, and, and watch the gloating um, that would have taken place. Um, and then I didn't want to come into work at a place that wasn't going to celebrate with me. And, and that was just, a, you know, and I recognized that I went ahead and took the day off ahead of time. And I remember the next day um, going out and I had a, a guy who owned his own apparel store and he had these shirts and I had this shirt on and it was, you know, just embracing the wind that we just had the night before. Um, able to wear that proudly, no issues, um, just really uh, just felt good about it. And I remember walking down the street and another woman, um, a black woman saw me and she gave me a, a firm, not a word, 
Um, she didn't say anything. She just gave me this affirming signal, kind of like, yes, we made it. And so um, it, it really empowered us. But again, um, it's unfortunate. In that situation, corporate America, we know what the feeling and the sentiments are. I had to take those kind of measures. You could have, you could have probably written a script about how the next day was going to go in your office as well. And that's what we're dealing with. Um, it's, it's ever present. Um, and the audacity of us to, to think that we can do that again. I think this is just a chin check. Um, and I don't think it's just the fear of um, what are they going to do to us. Um, I'm going to quote a poet that I know many events are probably not familiar with, but um, he says, they fear what they don't understand, hate what they can't conquer. Guess it's just a theory of man. And at the end of the day, when you don't understand someone because you didn't take the time to understand them, and you see them rising to place and you can't figure out how they got here because we haven't had that privilege that they have, that becomes an uncomfortable place for you because you have no idea. You recognize that there's the zenith, it's much different than yours they, 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 because they, they, they're matching blows and they haven't received our same benefits and our same training. And I think it's a lot of that kind of a fear as opposed to necessarily just a fear of retribution. I definitely agree with you that there is that idea that, oh no, they may get us for this, but it's more so they don't even wanna see us in that place as well. Um, so just the hate is um is deeply embedded. Thank I you. Appreciate that, El Elder Farrington. Let's say, um, Pastor, that it is because people are territorial, and what I mean by that is that when you encroach on another's position via um, housing, via employment, um, via those who you may choose to um, marry, or you know that may be akin to them then people look to protect that territory um, and they want to keep you in your place. And so when we see the economic advancement, the educational advancement um, and um, gains in society that we have made as people, they always seek to remind us who we are. And sometimes we have forgotten who we are because we have made those gains and thinking that we are part of that um, that, that, that status uh, a norm, you know, in terms of having made it with the white picket fence and things of that nature. Um, but they are quick to remind us that um, you, we, they, who they see us as being. So I think the racism always gonna exist because we know over time that um, we now have individuals in our families, um, whether our parents or those come behind us who are not just first um, to attend college, you know, there's a succession of that, uh, business owners, lawyers, and doctors. And we have made economic advances and, uh, and made our stride in society. And I think that uh, people want to protect what they think is there. That's why we have the slogan, make America great again, because they see, hey, we, we look around and we can see um, Jay-Z, a billionaire, LeBron James on his way, Tiger Wood, Michael Jordan owning a team. And the list goes on and on. And, and now they're thinking like, wow, there was a time when that was not so. When they was working at the factories, when they were sitting in, at the back of the bus, uh, when they were cleaning our homes and being um, our nannies to our children. And now we are in a position where we are employing others. Um, we are, um, we always have been adventurous, but we can see that we have made strides in various um, um, stations in life. And I think that the racism now is being boiled over where it was over um, at one point in time, but when it became um, not fashionable to be operating in an over fashion, it went covert. Now, now we find that it's back being over now because we have, 
we have a president. And Jason, you mentioned early, earlier about um, dog whistles in terms of buzzwords and things of that nature that has brought them out in masses where before they, they feared retribution. They feared, you know, loss of uh, employment of things of that nature to be, you know, because they wore hoods back then. Now they don't have to wear that. And it is, it is more or less a badge of honor to feel like they're protecting something. They showed up at state capitals so when we're looking at COVID-19 um, lockdown and open up the countries, but they're fully armed. What's that all about? It's, a, it's an act of intimidation. And they're trying to let anyone know, even those who are, look like them that is on the other side of the fence, that we are prepared to defend what they perceive as their rights, their territory to the full extent, if necessary. And I think as long as that is the undercurrent of their, of their, their thoughts, their behavior will always be the same. You know, it's funny enough you just said that. If I could say one quick thing, Pastor, to that. Okay. Um, on May 1st, you talk about those individuals showing up to the state capitol and uh, the president um, issued this um, tweet. Um, I mean, twit, the twit, I mean, he, he issued his tweet. Um, the governor of Michigan should should give a little and put out the fire. These are very good people, but they are angry. They want their lives back again safely. See them, talk to them, make a deal, right? That's May 1st of this year. On May 29th, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd. And I won't let that happen. Now, it seems as though he knows George, right? It seems like he must, he knows George and he, he feels as though he has, George has a certain legacy. He wants to protect his legacy. Then he goes on to say, just spoke to governor and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts, thank you. Very good people, thugs. Um, no words. Harper's already shown who he is from the time he, you know, he put that full page paper in the in the ad to to, to send the Central Park Five to the to the death uh, to the ex, you know be executed or try to reinstitute the uh, death penalty in New York. To them coming out and saying, you know, no, we didn't do it, getting exonerated. And he's still holding on and saying, well, the court of law, you know, found them guilty. I think that they're they're still guilty. But then but you compare Manafort. that to, huh? But not Manafort. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But you compare it to Sessions. You compare it to Sessions, who had all these like, accusations around him. He's like, well, Sessions said he wasn't guilty, so I'm going to ride with Sessions. So Trump has definitely made it clear what he's about. And I can't wait for November. And I'm praying that my peoples go out and vote. So that we can gain some more, gain our respect back as a country in the world. But right now we're a laughing stock. I'm not trying to hog the time, but I do want to say one thing. As black people, we are known to vote for something. But I haven't seen us in mass vote against something. And so if we're not motivated to go out and vote for a candidate as we did in 2008 uh, or 2007 for 2008, uh, I don't know if that happens this time around, hopeful, yes. Um, but just based upon our past, if we're not motivated to do it, um, you know, running to the polls for Biden, I don't know if that's gonna happen. Um, recognizing, however, the alternative is we get four more years of this going completely off, um, off the grid.
Definitely appreciate that. Definitely appreciate that. Good stuff. Uh, of course, as we know, uh, racism is, is really a system, you know, systematic racism. And, and it's just, um, it, there's so many things just stacked against black and brown individuals. And so uh, the prison system, uh, their laws stacked against us. Uh, when we even look at, I think it was Wells Fargo was just written up a while ago because they were charging, uh, they had higher interest rates for black and brown people with the same credit score as white individuals. It's just, it's just really messed up. And then of course, voter suppression. There's, there's, it's just a system against black and brown people, but this is where we are in the state that we're living in. But I, I want to, if we can, kind of shift the conversation to the rioting. Of course, we saw uh, what's happening in Minneapolis. Uh, we even see what's happening in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, there was shootings there. And, and I wanna throw this out there to us. Uh, what, what are your viewpoints of, of the rioting? Uh, what, what do you say to that? Is it right, wrong? Um, and I want to ask the preacher that question. Um, you know, as I continue to listen and watch, you know, it's disheartening to see that it has escalated to that point. But what we see uh, manifested through the writings is the people that are just tired. Um, as a millennial, about 30, I'm 31 years old. Um, I haven't lived through many of the, um, you know, the marches that Martin Luther King did or the times of Malcolm X. But these are times that are repeating itself that is showing us that in this generation that we're not just gonna sit back and watch as we see um, another man say, I can't breathe or, you know, sit back and watch as we print shirts and memorabilia for people and do nothing. So it's just, it's sad to see, but we have to accept the reality. This is where our country has led us to because the lack of, you know, just support that we're getting as a community to move ahead in life and to not be seen as a target. Um, you know, before it used to be many men were targets, but now I look at the Breonna Taylors and I question myself, I am open game. Any black woman or brown woman is open game for any kind of racism or injustice. So I cannot fool myself to think that you know, I can just walk out and nothing can happen to me. So I, you know, support justice by all costs. My thing right now is justice is not the absence of mercy, but is the presence of just mercy. So if that's how people see to find their justice, you can replace tennis shoes from Target. You can re restock shelves of merchandise, but you can't bring back a life in George Floyd. You cannot bring back Trayvon Martin. You cannot bring back all of these people that lost their lives senselessly over someone not being able to keep their cool or because of the hatred that they have within their heart. And we see it in Amy Cooper. Um, Amy Cooper could have almost caused a man to die. So, you know, so we have to put that in perspective. Y'all can replace that. You all have insurance. Um, I'm pretty sure Target is well stacked with some good old insurance, but you can't replace lives. So people are just tired they're frustrated, they're angry, they're exhausted. And this is just a manifestation of what they're doing. All right, thank you for that. Uh, Elder Farrington, what's your view of the rioting? Do you think it's right, wrong? Uh, what's your opinion? 
I think inherently as a people um, and, and as citizens, especially in this country, we have the right um, in terms of um, to gather and to protest um, whatever uh, we deem that is uh, necessary in terms of unlawful. And I'm, I'm speaking very spooky in a general sense here. Um, but from being specific as a people, uh, it's when the, the continual hurt boils over uh, it, it takes a psychological impact on us. We've been told, you know, if, if you, I, I grew up in the 70s and was coming out of the 60s where they were, there was marching for a cause. And Martin Luther King was seeing in their speeches, you know, how many you know, times they would tell them just to be, you know, calm, things are gonna happen, you know, and, and um, you say gradualism leads to cooling offism, you know, and it's like, you know, they, they want to keep you in a place, place and they say, let justice take its, run its course, meaning that just stay home, you know, shelter in place, so to speak, and let the wheels of justice turn, which is supposedly is blind. And we've seen after countless times when they, charges weren't brought, and even when they brought charges, that there was an acquittal. And now we have to march just to get an arrest for people that have committed over acts that it can't be justified no matter how you spin it. But yet still, we hear the coroner report that has been made public that he said that the person, uh, um, George Floyd, didn't die from, um, you know, from being fixated. And how could that be? Somebody that has his knee on a person for uh, roughly 10 minutes and you can say that there are some other underlying contributing factors that potentially, I can say potentially, some intoxicants in a system where you get, you know, going grasping straws in, in that regards. So it fuels our, our, the rage in us. And so we can't stay inside. So the place is to take it to the streets, as we'll call it. And so I think we have a right for peaceful protest. Now, it does create a stain in a black eye when we see the looting, because that further perpetuate how they view us in society, that we will destroy something, you know, and, and, and oftentimes it's been our own neighborhoods. And I think there are people in there that may look at it as an opportunity. Some may feel justified in doing so. But in regards to the, 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 um, the gathering of people of like mind, which means that there are people that across the color line to mark that have marched with us and continue to march with us from the 60s even until now. But I think um, when we see where um, it takes a turn is when you know individuals who may be hurt in the process of, of this and, and the rioting take place and, and then that brings out the National Guard and the army and things of that nature and they're willing to, to, to increase the measure of force to regain some sense of civility in, in those situations. So um, I think it's necessary because if we don't show that um, the rage um, is fuming and, and, and boiling over, then there gets to a point like, you know, there's an acceptance or we are okay with it. And I think we're, it's beyond time now that we just sit back and wait. And I think the, 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 the marches, are, um, the gathering, the protest is well justified. Um, I do know that things have gone for worse and then that's all they wanna walk away with, you know, um, those who are on the other side and thinking of us as just being looters. 
and um, and exploiting the situation. So, but I, I wouldn't even for that. I wouldn't stop or suggest that we don't. All right, uh, Elder English, you want to jump in there? Uh, um, I'll say real quick. Um, you know, certainly Martin Luther King said that rioting is a voice of the unheard. Right. So people feel like that they're they're doing all these other things and they're nothing is changing sometimes that's the way that they express themselves uh personally you know uh you know i don't know if dragging at four 4k tvs down the road really contributes to you know justice for george floyd but i would say this i'm certainly not an ad, I, you know I, you're not going to find me out there mashing windows and everything but there are a couple of nuances to this story that i just want to make sure that we're clear on there's clear video of someone who was not one of us, who was dressed in what more looked like police riot gear with the tear gas mask, breaking out the windows of the auto zone or whatever that's, that, this, that, uh, that one of those stores was and uh, ran into a third precinct there, right? So if you are someone that this incident happened with a cop and you've seen this guy run into the third precinct and you burn down that precinct, I'm not saying it's right, <laughs> but at least your ire is kind of targeted and narrow. Uh, if you go after Target because they didn't give you milk, right, when you were when you were tear gassed and you're mad at Target for that, I understand that, but it's not right. It's almost like more principled if you if you were to just burn it down and not take the stuff out. You, you understand what I'm saying? And again, I'm not trying to justify it, but um, uh, to the extent that our folk were involved in it directly, um, if it's targeted, um, that's probably more acceptable. Uh, but I'm not convinced that our folk were the ones that were instigating it, just based on some of the uh, information that's coming across Twitter. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Right. I appreciate that. I don't know if you want to add anything, um, Elder Tracy. No, um, because at the end of the day, I'm only stuck on, I'm still stuck on what happened to George Floyd. Um, so to, I don't want to take away take the discussion to where they want us to have the discussion regarding our response to what happened to George Floyd. I'm interested in what their response is to what happened to George Floyd to ensure we don't end up on this road again. Um, and that's just the, this, the, you know, the simple part of it. To be honest with you, as relates to Target and the police departments in Minneapolis, um, there are some measures that should have been taken by the police department in Minneapolis so that we wouldn't be here right now when you watch a man or you refuse to watch a man die by standing in front with your back to him, being told by the person behind the camera, he's dying, he's dying, he can't breathe, he's, he's not moving, are you serious? And you refuse to turn over your shoulder and look, not, not drive to, a, to another location, but to turn and look over your shoulder, but yet protect and serve, that's the oath he took. Um, that's where my issues are. All right, all right. So let's let's try to move forward uh, because it 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 almost seems like it is a crime to be black and brown uh, in the United States, and I, I really do want to focus this uh, this portion of discussion on our, uh, our our law team, our lawyers, and so um, and I want to ask the question: um, You know, what are our rights? course, if we're pulled over by the police, uh, what are our rights? What should we do? Uh, can we film? Uh, I, I can remember years ago when I was attending uh, Oakwood, I came home uh, for the summer and uh, 
Elder Baldwin, one of our classmates, Ricky McFay, I was with Ricky, he was dropping me home and the police, they, they pulled us over and uh, they, they said they stopped us because there was a small little crack in the top of the windshield. And so the top of the windshield, then he got a little machine and judged the tint on our uh, uh, on the windows and said the tint was too dark. He gave us a ticket for that, gave us a ticket for the windshield, gave us a ticket for seat belts. He, he made us come out of the car. We had to sit on the curb. He went inside the car, started to look through our, our tapes and CDs, the accidents, what are we listening to? And I think we walked away with four tickets, four tickets that day. I, I didn't know my rights. I didn't know what to do. And, and the crazy thing is the very next day, the very next day, that same police officer stopped me and gave me two more tickets. And so, uh, but I, I do want to just ask our lawyers you know, what are our rights? If we're pulled over, if we come in contact with law enforcement, um, what are our rights? What can we do? What should we do? Uh, can we film? And I want to throw that out to our, our lawyers if we, we can. Uh, Elder um, English, if you could start it off. <laughs> I was hoping that Elder Tracy practiced criminal law, but uh, I, I, my, my experience is very limited. But I will say, um, you know, in terms of filming, just to answer your question directly, yeah, technically, yes, you can film cops in Florida. Uh, it's one of the states where we do have the dual party consent rule for filming, for video recording. However, cops law enforcement is explicitly excluded from that. So you don't need to get their permission uh, is my understanding. You know, my son is 14 years old, gonna turn 15 in a few months. I'm already getting the, the daddy and teeth have drive, you know, questions. And, uh, you know, really that's one of the last things I wanna do because I can't imagine my son going out and hanging out with his friends now is just very difficult for me to get there. You know, the parents and you probably, your son's 18, so you probably have late nights, I don't know. But I would tell my son the same thing I would, I would tell everybody the same thing I would tell my son, right? And I'm gonna say the C word, which gets a lot of negative traction on social media, but the C word is comply. Not to say that compliance is gonna save your life because it didn't save George Floyd's life. It didn't save the life of Breonna Taylor. It didn't save the life of a bunch of people that we are well aware of, but I already know that the odds are better if you do comply. So let me, let me just say that there, right? Now, in your situation, um, Pastor Newton, I was in that same situation years ago, coming from back from one of these many Oakwood trips, riding with a couple of friends of mine in their car, their family had a brand new Benz, and I ended up driving, we pulled up at the turnpike, and we are, I'm driving, it's like two o'clock in the morning, and there are three cop cars there, just back in the day, you have to get a ticket, right? When you go to that thing and get the ticket from the turnpike, to, uh, to, to, to track your travel. And I saw the cops there. I understand there's three brothers in the car. I'm gonna set the cruise control at 60 or 65. I go out about two miles, they light me up, they come, he's yelling at me, saying he had to go like 98 miles an hour to come and, tra and, uh, and, and catch me. And anyway, long story short, he lied. I know he lied, he knows I know he's lying. He had the nerve to ask me, Could, can I search your vehicle for drugs? I'm like, no, you can't search my vehicle for drugs. If you just lied about my speed, there's no way I'm going to trust you going inside my car. So you don't have to consent to a search, you know, in that regard. But I had to sit there for 45 minutes. Mind you, I'm two miles away where I saw they had a canine unit. I had to wait for 45 minutes at two o'clock in the morning for them to bring that canine unit here so he could sniff around 
the car and obviously they let us go. But, you know, comply, my compliance was I got out of the car when he said, you know what I'm saying? I answered his questions, uh, you know, and so forth. But you don't have to give them extra stuff, like allowing them to search your car. Like that guy with you in the CDs, like, you know, uh, I'm just frustrated. I was frustrated listening to that because he could have done anything. You know what I mean? And uh, so, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll leave it. I, I'll leave it at that. I would tell my son to comply. I see people say, oh, if that cop did that to me, I would do X, Y, Z. No, no. You're going to lose that fight. You're going to lose that fight every time. Comply, come back and get your daddy. We'll go meet him in court and we'll try and get it right. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, Elder Tracy. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, Elder English, he hit all the, um, the, the um, buzzwords. Florida, the two-party consent um, officers are considered to be public um, employees, so they don't have an expectation of privacy as it relates to that. However, um, so legally, you're on the right side if you record, but what they oftentimes do is if they see you with your phone and you're holding your phone up trying to record, they'll tell you, put the phone down. They'll make it seem as though um, you are obstructing their ability to conduct a proper investigation or be able to continue with whatever they're trying to do, whether it be um, question you about speed, whatever it is, and they'll make it seem as though that's obstructing that. And then they'll arrest you for resisting arrest without violence, because that can be done without actually using any physical um, aggression towards an officer. You can literally just say something. If you curse, if you seem as though you're being too aggressive in your tone, um, they'll use that as being non-compliant and find a reason to arrest you. So you can record, um, as some legal professionals will tell you oftentimes um, in the criminal defense world, that if you're okay spending a few hours in um, a holding cell, record. <laughs> they'll take you in. Um, the state won't necessarily file charges against you because it's a literally there's nothing there, but they will at least do that because they're trying to get back at you for thinking you have the right to record um, and put them out there. And the other thing is, um, you know, the, the complicit piece is, is very important. Um, and one of the things, and I hate to say this, it's hard because you want to be able to um, have your children have a voice. You know, I have children as well, and you want to be able to give them the voice. You want them to have that voice. And the moment you 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 you, you try to constrict that or restrain that, it it does something to the psyche of the individual. Don't say anything. But in all honesty, um, you know you've been pulled over for a trumped up charge. You know they're getting ready to um, try and um, arrest you or whatever it may be. And the best thing you can do is stay quiet. Literally, if they ask you if they, can, if they can search the car, your answer should be no. Beyond that, don't ask, why'd you pull me over? I wasn't speeding, I had the cruise control set. There's no way you got me going 98. I had it set at 65, you can see it right here. See, I still have this cruise control button depressed or whatever it may be. Going through that discourse, it's, it's going, you're not going to win a trial on the side of the street in the middle of the night or broad daylight for that matter. And so um, remaining quiet, what that does is it doesn't give them that extra leverage to arrest you for obstruction of justice or for resisting arrest without violence because in the arrest is where you start seeing the extra aggression and ultimately the death that takes place. What they do is they'll arrest you. George Floyd apparently had a $20 bill that was um, found to be counterfeit. They can't determine whether he had knowledge of that and we'll never know at this point whether he had knowledge of it being counterfeit. But again, a white collar crime at, at most, at most, right? They end up putting him, placing him in custody and placing him under arrest. And after doing all of that, he ends up dead. So it's, it's, you're better off as best as possible to remain quiet. It's the advice that I would give my children. It's the advice I would give my nephew. It's the advice that I would give anyone else out there. 
And it's not legal advice, it's survival advice for a black male, black female. Um, uh, and, and so unfortunately that's where we are. And what's happening is our counterparts know our disadvantage. And we saw that with Amy. Amy knows the disadvantage that we have. And Amy knew if I, if I even, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna call the cops. I'm gonna tell them that an African, she used the right, she, she, she tried to go politically correct with the term. She didn't say another type of um, N word. She didn't say, um, which I, I would say, but for, I understand we're broadcasting. She didn't say a Negro. She didn't say the, the black. Um, she didn't say, she said she, the African-American because again, she does donate a lot of money to these causes. So she knows exactly, she's in, she knows exactly what to do. But when it came time and the rubber meets the road and that's why racism and white supremacy is not about what lines you vote along. It's not about what, what party affiliation you have. The civil war was never about um, how much they loved the blacks and felt bad for blacks who were, who were disenfranchised. And it's, it's, it was economics. And so at the end of the day, <laughs> You know, Amy um, and, 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 and Christian, that encounter, it was, it, it needed to happen when it happened on the heels of what happened to George Floyd for us to see what Amy was trying to get done. And, and so, you know, as tragic as both situations are, Amy actually pointed to George Floyd and telling Christian, you run upon me again, you're next. And that's the power that they have received in the United States um, land of the um, home of the brave, land of the free. This is the message that's been disseminated that if you have a problem with any of them, remember, we have power, we have backup. Last thing I'll say is this, you know, there's a lot of uproar about um, during the national anthem kneeling um, for fo before a football game, right? And how disrespectful it was to kneel. All of those individuals who've gone out to fight, all the individuals who are in the military, it's so disrespectful to kneel. Um, I had an opportunity to go to um, the DC um, area some years ago, a friend of mine, former Marine, took me out, um, picked me up from the airport and took me for a drive and we went up to that old familiar um, uh, uh, statue of the individual holding up the American flag and, and guess what, some of them are actually kneeling because they're trying to really just hold the flag up, never called disrespectful. Um, what, what I also have heard in times past is defacing the um, United States flag, that is considered to be um, one of the most disrespectful things you can do, defacing it. However, in the wake of this kneeling during the national anthem, I have seen more American flags turn colors from red, white, and blue to blue and black to honor police power. Now, no one says that's disrespectful. No one says you're dishonoring the American flag by making a new flag that speaks to police power Blue Lives Matter. And I understand that um, there's some pushback um, Elder English against your shirt, um, but there we go, right? There's pushback against that. And so they ended up pushing this whole nother agenda, you know, um, Blue Lives Matter. And so, but when you look at that flag, not one person has said a mumbling word about taking that old red, white, and blue. The song speaks to the colors, but they changed the colors and it's quite all right by that side of America. And that's very strange. I appreciate that, appreciate that. So, I mean, very good discussion. I uh, really enjoyed myself. Let's try to bring this to a close. And uh, this, is, this is a question I'm gonna ask to, to all of you. Um, 
how should the Christian handle racism and social injustice? How should the Christian handle uh, racism and social injustice? I want to ask that question to uh, Elder Ferenc. Um, Interesting question. <clears throat> when we look at uh, being a, um, a Christian and a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, we understand that heaven is our ultimate goal in our home and that we're striving for. And so we operate on a higher plane in terms of our, our morale, um, in terms of, you know, um, the uh, thoughts and activities. Uh, yes, still, while we're striving for a home, we have a home here. And when there is continual injustices <clears throat> perpetrated against our community, then as we, um, we seen this onward Christian soldier, you know, marching as to war, then I think we are to, to um, find ourselves or arm ourselves in terms of um, fighting in this social war uh, against injustices um, that has been perpetrated against our community continually. Frederick Douglass once said, um, agitate, agitate, agitate. And, uh, and uh, what, what I find uh, value in that is that when we look to uh, riot, not riot, but um, protest, uh, it's letting the system know that we are not gonna take it standing still, that we're looking, that we're, we're well aware of our rights and that we are gonna marshal against those forces to um, to demand justice, and sometimes I take an economic form as well as a political form. Um, we have to look at how we are spending our dollars, uh, in, in terms of businesses that we patronize, and then we have to recalculate um, um, the impact collectively as as a people that the power that we yield, if we are concerted. Um, you know, God said um, to those who are building a tower, baby, say, um, you say, we have to go down and confuse them because what they imagined they would do. Now, not that often they've been successful building a, a temple that was reaching to heaven because they get to a point you couldn't breathe as the air gets thinner. But it's, the fact is, even united, people can do, um, um, you know, wield a great power influence. And so I think for us as Christians, you know, and living, in this world, we can't live absent of it or devoid of it or on the sideline. We live in this world. Um, we are um, touched by um, all that happens um, to us, in us and around us. And I think that we uh, don't feel like it's a dual responsibility I'm saying, or a separate one being a Christian and being a, a law abiding citizen. So I, I think as, as Christians, then, um, especially now, because you asked a question earlier, you know, your first question um, you start off with. And I think as Adventists, there has been a void, a vacuum, a vacancy in activism. We don't find um, from the church a stance during the civil rights era, doing slavery, doing all that time. And we don't find a, a church position now. And so it makes it seem like there's some um, there that we are that is wrong. Uh, from a spiritual point of view, because we have pretty much have uh, walked with our Bibles um, in, in, in marching towards Zion, so to speak. But, you know, uh, in regards to um, the social injustice around us and, and, and the people who are being harmed by it. 
So it makes it seem like, you know, that it's something that we have to have a discussion about is something that should have been happening by the fact that we are addressing it now and we see many among us are willing to take a different route. Um, we question sometimes whether or not that's position a Christian should have because of the void and the vacuum that has taken place for so long. So I, I, I think it's not um, any disrespect. I think we have to be mindful of our, our, of our thoughts, the words and how we carry ourselves. But I think for the most part, um, as Christian, especially as, as Black Seventh-day Adventists, that is something that we uh, need to consider to be more active in doing. And we, when we look at um, how we evangelize uh, nowadays and, and probably more so in time past and how we try to address the needs of the community in terms of food drive, um, doing uh, blood pressure screenings and things of that nature. And we try to make sure we speak to the um the needs and concerns of the people that we're looking to invite to a tent effort or to a, a Bible study or to, you know, a, uh, a uh, week of prayer, things of that nature. And we want to show that we are engaged in the community. And I think in doing so nowadays, so we're, we're seeing, we see more of our churches doing food drives and, and, and um, providing clothing and things of that nature. And I think this is in concert with that that we march arm in uh, arm, arm um, elbows to elbows and shoulder to shoulder, saying that we are united in the cause, that it's, it's not separate. It's not like we are targeted separate as Christians, as Black Seventh-day Adventists. We're seen as Black, period, no matter what. No one asks our, our religious affiliation. They don't ask, our, uh, I mean, what degree we have when we're being, um, um, being racially profiled. The fact that you share the same skin color or have this skin color is grounds enough for, for many to treat you the way um, they do. So, uh, and because of that, then we should be fighting for justice, um, the same as those without our, our same um, denominational um, spiritual beliefs and values. All right, thank you for that. Um, Elder English, you could add on to that. What should we do as Christians to handle racism and social injustice? Yeah, so, uh Racism is a problem, right? We should be uh, trying to tackle problems. Jesus fed people when they were hungry. You know, if the problem was they were hungry, I fed them. If the problem was they were blind, I made them see. If the problem was that they couldn't walk, I'm going to help them walk because that's what Jesus did. He met people at their needs. Jesus also, um, you know, dealt with sin. And I believe that racism is a problem, just generally speaking, and racism is sin. And the same way we deal with sin, and it's, that the sin is going to be with us until the end of time, right? So Jesus comes again. We have to continue to be vigilant in that era. In that era. So years ago, uh, some people at my church tabernacle, about 15, 16 years ago, they just they realized that we weren't speaking a lot to uh, sexual purity and so forth in the church. So they started an organization, Pure Reality, and they you know get four or five hundred kids every year, and they do this great program, and it's awesome. You know, so that was a targeted response to a specific problem. What's the response to this problem? I don't know if we will ever change the hearts of all men when it comes to racism, you know, but we can definitely deal with some of the implications that racism has, that uh, how it impacts us. Um, you know, the civil rights movement was never about so-and-so doesn't like me. The civil rights movement was about civil rights. I want to be able to vote. I want to be able to buy a house in this area, whatever the case may be. So, you know, I, I would certainly take the approach that certainly vote, voting works. The DA or the county attorney in this, in this area of Minneapolis, Minneapolis has been there for like 20 years, 
right? And there's been a long history of a failure to hold count, uh, cops accountable. But if we only vote when Obama's running for president, then we're gonna miss that vote, right? So we have to vote in these off, a lot of these local elections are in off years, right? So it's not gonna be presidential year elections, it's gonna be the off years. So you have to vote in those off years when the local DA, when the local judges are running. I practiced in Houston. I went to law school in Houston. A couple of years ago, there was a what they call a blue wave in Houston where a bunch of uh, Republican um, uh, judges were unseated by a bunch of black women, <laughs> right? It, was, it made worldwide news. I mean, these are some of the people I sat in classes with. I'm very proud of what they did, but they only did that because people were finally angry enough and frustrated enough with what was happening in the Houston criminal justice system to say, I need to do something different because if I keep staying home, I'm gonna keep getting the same result. So I'm gonna encourage everyone to vote, not just in 2020, but in, 20, in, uh, in 2022, whenever there is a local election, encourage everyone to fill out the census form, right? Because that brings dollars back to the community that we can do things. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a way that we need to be involved in what's happening on the local governmental level that impacts us. And we as a church, if we care about the community, if we care about our brothers and sisters, then we should be pushing that and helping, helping to encourage our people to be involved in that process. Thank you for that. All right, we're going to ask uh, Elder Tracy the same question. Um, so a couple of things I'll say, um, just to the last point Elder English brought out, um, you know, there's definitely um, systemic racism and aggression towards Black women and Black men. Um, but the images portrayed um, by the media, um, who are as much accountable as anyone else in this instance, is that they are willing to put a black woman as an anchor person for the news, whereas you will find very hard to find a black male as an anchor man um, for any major uh, any news um, through um, station throughout the country. And the reason for that is um, we're typically the caption behind the news anchor as to a um, someone you know a suspect or whatever it may be or someone who just who's just been arrested. Again, perpetuating the image of the black male. And so to hire one of us. We have to laugh a lot, smile a lot, seem non-threatening. And then there's also some other questions about how, how our confusion plays into that as well for them to hire us and have us in that, um, in that capacity. So um, that's one thing, um, but that's awesome in Houston. Um, we could do more of that um, and understand that there is an impact people look to see where their votes are coming from. So the DA in Minneapolis, the reason why they haven't done anything against the cops is because when the time's coming for um, to run for office, that endorsement from the police department, from the police chief, that's huge. And um, recognized as a former prosecutor, um, the there in the DA here, the state attorney, that endorsement from the police departments speaks to your cooperation and working hand in hand with police departments. And so what happens is you um, want that, you need that in order to secure um, your, your reelection. Um, the issue I'm having right now, um, just to quickly speak to this, the issue I have with the riots, I didn't say this earlier, is that with COVID-19, that's my major issue. Um, it's not about how much money they're losing in the retail industry or anything of that nature, but with COVID-19 still rampant, um, these individuals protesting getting together um, are putting themselves in a very precarious position as far as the health aspect of it is concerned. And so that's my concern. That's my prayer that no one ends up getting ill from that. Um, one of the things that Elder um, Ferenc you brought out was the position of the church. They have stayed silent for many years, many, many years. I was surprised when the North American Division did issue a statement um, very um, 
I mean, so, so surprised that it actually moved tears just to hit my eyes uh, when reading that because I just, I've never seen that position taken from the church. I've seen very um, polar opposite positions at times uh, from members and also from some affiliates. And then to hear that um, the GC did issue a statement as well um, and actually spoke to African-American injustice as opposed to saying, you know, violence across the board and they trying to smooth it over. Um, that was also reassuring as well. Um, you know, I've been um, subjected to racism um, outside the church, directly from skinheads um, in Palm Beach International Airport, straight up. I've been on the street subjected to racism um, where it's gone physical. Um, while walking down the street, I've gotten um, accosted in many different situations. My wife was expecting. I had a, um, a verbal assault, um, onslaught of words about um, bringing another one of them into the world. So um, the, the, the racism it, um, from without has been tremendous. I, I've been heavily involved um, on, on receiving end of that. Racism from within the church, I've been heavily, um, you know, received some of that as well. I've gone to a church not knowing um, any difference as a child, maybe about eight years of age. And um, my sister and I were invited to one of her um, Sabbath school classmates' homes for lunch. And we couldn't figure out why we were in the patio. As children didn't really get it, you know, just in the patio the whole time for the lunch, everyone else was inside. And then finally at the end of the luncheon, um, the father of the um, young lady um, who invited us over, she, uh, the father came over to my sister and I and said, there's another church you may feel more comfortable going to. And so um, that was unfortunate, you know, that's the eighties. And then only to have, you know, the 3ABN um, President Danny Sheldon come out earlier this year and make statements because he did bring in um, a presidential um, candidate um, to speak at their camp meeting, um, who is allegedly, I, I'm not sure where he is now, but allegedly at some point was Seventh-day Adventist to come and speak. And he received some backlash because of that. Um, and he issued a few statements, just trying to really dig his heels in and reaffirm his position and really just went after um, the black membership. Um, and one of the things he said that really struck me was, you know, how we could, we, this group of individuals with this hue, how we could um, endorse and, and, and back individuals who believe in killing millions and millions of babies. And so my question to that is how do you endorse someone who backs killing millions and millions of black men? And so the same question he puts out regarding um, abortion, I put out regarding unarmed black men who are dying systemically and who your endorsement of this administration, because again, um, this is where um, Danny Shelton was in this on this position, his endorsement, that individual, we can remember this current administration saying, when you have a suspect handcuffed and you're putting them in the car, make sure you force them in, force their head in, and you know you, you hit them a little bit as they're going into the, into the vehicle. So again, perpetuating that idea that, yeah, you, you, you know, excessive force and everything else. And so that's who um, this individual was backing. So because of that, I've taken a personal position concerning 3ABN um, moving forward. I do not support and advocate um, that, that um, broadcast, which I used to do very heavily until he comes and makes a public apology concerning those statements and um, recants and, and um, shows some kind of public remorse um, towards our community for doing that. Dare to dream is not enough. Um, and so, um, as it relates to the um, the 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 onset the the, the ongoing um, nature of this, the only way we're going to get this corrected is going to be through an economic stance, and it's, it cannot be for a day. It can't be a day blackout of spending because what's going to happen is we do it on July seventh, July eighth, we're going to go overspend. So if we want to do something, it has to be where they feel the impact. The bus boycott in Montgomery lasted over a year. 
before there was some type of change that took place. It was supposed to last just a day and they kind of roll it over and the next thing you know, it goes into a year and then they, those steps were taken. There are local steps that can be taken. There are national steps that can be taken, but I can assure you if black America stood up and said, we're no longer going to fly any domestic airlines, just, just gonna shut it down for, for, another, for a month, let's say, right? I can almost assure you that all of our Caribbean brothers and sisters who've been subjected to the same racism in their home, in their home countries, when they fly into America, maybe they'll say, you know what, rather than use the American airlines, we'll actually use our home domestic airlines and we'll use those airlines to fly in. That type of economic pressure is what brought on the civil war. That type of economic pressure is what the government uses, administration uses against countries that they have a problem with, but they put in certain economic sanctions against Iran or um, embargoes against um, other countries, such as what they did with Cuba um, um, in times past and what they're dealing with with China with this whole trade um, um, conflict. Let's take a page out of their book. Money is all the, the language that they understand. It's money. It's, it has nothing to do with our lives. They care less about us. We can sing kumbaya all we want to. We can hold hands and march in the whole nine. It may make us get off bent for a little bit, but in order for this to get corrected, it has to have some kind of an economic um, impact where they start to feel it. It's not that great again. We need to figure this thing out and fix it. Thank you for that, Elder. Good stuff, good stuff. So we, we definitely need to bring this thing to a close. And so what we're going to do, we're going to actually ask uh, our pastor, Pastor Sai, if you could just give us our closing thoughts on this, bringing it all together and just give us our, our final prayer. Absolutely. Um, I just wholeheartedly believe that these conversations should continue. Um, it shouldn't be a conversation that we have when the country is in uproar or when there is the next headline, but it, it should be a conversation that it's continued, that we should do it as often as we should, just because it keeps us abreast, it keeps us fresh on these topics, and it helps us to bring about change. There are a lot of people that are unaware of their rights. There are a lot of people that are unaware of the, the racial climate, and sometimes it takes time to educate we can't dare change people, but we can facilitate in that process. Um, one text that I wanna leave us with this evening is the text of Micah 6, 8. Um, it's one of my favorite texts that speaks to the times that we're in. Um, I'm reading it from the New International Version and it says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Um, and what that says to me is that as believers in, in Christ, believers in God, that we shouldn't have our head in the sand with these issues, but we should be on the front lines. We should be challenging our local leaders to make um, change to the, the, the frustrations that we are experiencing and encountering um, today. Um, we shouldn't just be looking to the world church to put out statements, but we have to remember that we are the church. Um, I think that was one of the biggest themes that we were preaching when we were in this crisis with COVID. You know, when we had to close our churches, we had to remind people that we are church beyond the walls. We, we are the people that make up the, the church and the building, so to speak. So um, those are comforting words to me. And I hope to the rest of our viewers and to our panelists this evening that let's keep these conversations going so that you know, some may get weary in their well-doing, but let's not get weary because we know that at some point, um, these are just stepping stones that Christ is using to bring in a second coming. As Elder Farrington said, we cannot be 
we cannot be absent of the fact that we're not just citizens of this world, but we are in fact citizens of the world to come. So let's bear that in mind as we fight the good fight of faith so that we know that our fight won't be in vain. And at the, at the end times, Christ is the judge. He will do as he sees fit to bring this thing to a close. So at this time, I wanna pray over all of us, pray over our community um, to keep our faiths encouraged, to know that God um, is with us, he's walking with us and that he will do um, the imaginable moving forward. So God of heaven, we just wanna say thank you so much for this dialogue that we were able to come together and to just talk about how um, we're hurting, how Lord, we're frustrated and just some of the concerns that we have about our community and remind us Lord that um, we're not just citizens of the world here and in, in the USA, but we're citizens of the world to come. So Lord, in the meantime, we still have a work to do. There's still gospel that needs to go out. There's still people that need to hear of your love and how you are mighty to save. So help us to not miss that message as we are on this mission. We thank you for allowing us to have this forum. We weren't able to do it at church, but look, we're able to do it on the internet where this can be shared and distributed to so many different countries. And we thank you for that. And take us from this place, never from your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you again. Thank you again, our panelists. And thank you for those of you who watch. God bless you all.